Good morning, everyone. All right, we're going to start with a prayer before we get into chapter whatever we're doing. 18. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon us in our time together today. Fill us with your spirit. Help us and those we love, all those who need your prayer. Today, especially, we lift up Effie McCullough. We lift up Bob Wilbur. We lift up Rhett, Taylor, David, Melanie, Susan, and all those in recovery to give them strength. This we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are doing chapter 18 today. Chapter 18, I know I kind of say this every week, but it's a good one. And so chapter 18 is the last chapter in Luke before we get into Jerusalem, before we actually get into what we would recognize as Jesus' passion. In chapter 19, Jesus arrives and has the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we kind of liturgize at Palm Sunday. And so when we come back in two weeks, it will be the week before Palm Sunday, and we'll actually do the chapter of Palm Sunday in Luke. Now, it's not going to continue to work out quite that well, um, but do note, and you'll, you got this in your email, we'll send a little reminder as well next week. We are not meeting next week, right? Next week is spring break for all the schools, and so people like me will be doing something with their children. And so we are not meeting next week, but we will meet again in two weeks, and then we continue through the end of the school year that first week of May. And the rest of our time after this week is going to be focused primarily on the passion story, right? Trial, death, resurrection of Jesus. And it won't line up perfectly with our own Holy Week Easter celebrations. We're going to be doing a lot of that in April after Easter, but that's all right, because it's going to kind of start around the same time. So no study next week. We'll be back in two weeks. But this is the last chapter before we get to Jesus's passion story. And today we've got some really good stuff. Now here's the context. If you remember the geography of Israel, right, in the north, you've got Galilee. Sort of, in the sort of north, you've got Nazareth. Galilee's a little farther north. And so Jesus was raised in Nazareth and has done most of his ministry in the Galilean region, right? That's where Capernaum is. That's where the fishermen fished. And so most of his stuff has happened in that northern part of Israel. But if you remember, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem, which is both a figurative and a literal turn toward his inevitable passion. When Jesus makes that turn, he starts his trip. And we get these experiences like the Mount Tabor, where Jesus has his transfiguration. And stories like the one in chapter 18 today, where Jesus sort of follows the River Jordan down the west, sorry, down the east side of the country. And when he reaches the city of Jericho, he makes a direct turn west toward Jerusalem. So the geography, I just want you to have that in your mind. If you've got study Bibles, you've got maps. If you've got N.T. Wright's book, Luke for Everyone, there's a map in there as well. And so Jesus is basically coming from the north down the Jordan River, and he's going to make a turn at Jericho toward Jerusalem. We see the last little bit of his story today before he makes his turn toward Jericho and ultimately Jerusalem. So here's the summary of chapter 18. 
the first thing we get is the persistent widow. What a ridiculous name. Persistent widow and the tax collector. The second is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is a great story that challenges us a lot. And then third is the healing of the blind beggar. So we're going to begin with the, this pair of stories, perhaps pair of parables almost, that Jesus tells about a persistent widow and a tax collector. Now these stories are unified by the idea of judgment. And we don't really like judgment, right? We can't deny it. It's in the scripture. But if we can ignore it most of the time, we like to. And so what I want to say is that, yes, this is about judgment, but I want to kind of tweak the idea of judgment. It's not necessarily something ugly or perhaps what we would describe as judgmental. What it really is is about making things right. There is a word that we see at the end of this story, justification. That is more what Jesus is talking about here, justified or vindicated, perhaps more than judgment. Right? So there's this idea, although we talk about judges and judgment in the story, what Jesus is really putting forward is this idea of turning something so that it's right, or perhaps cleaning something so that it is right. Vindication, justification is probably a bit better than judgment. Now, I want to make a quick note of the historic context here. Within the Jewish legal system, we did not, they did not have what we might today identify as like professional lawyers, right? There weren't counselors who would represent you in court necessarily. Instead, there were judges that would hear your case. It's almost sort of like what you would see on TV when people are trying civil suits. You rarely see a lawyer representing a plaintiff or a defendant. Instead, they basically just argue their own cases for themselves. That is mostly what would have happened in all situations in these legal courts. And so the idea, we have to put ourselves in that place because the idea of a persistent woman may not make a lot of sense to us because we understand the legal system in which it, when a decision's made, you can appeal, and that might be persistent. But if you take the lawyers away, then you almost free individuals up to be a much squeakier wheel within the process, and that's really what we see today. So there's a woman who is going in front of a judge, and Jesus describes this judge as unjust. He continues the description to basically mean that the judge just kind of doesn't care. Like he's not doing what he's supposed to do. He is not responsible in the way that he is meant to be responsible. And this woman knows it. And so rather than taking his first judgment, which is not for her, she comes back and comes back again. And in essence, the judge says, you know, this woman is so annoying that I might as well just side with her to get her off my back right? That is the whole story. And then Jesus says, just if an unjust judge can be convinced to do the right thing, 
how much more right will the just judge of the world, God, do the right thing? That is a weird argument to make, right? I think if, if, if I'm honest with you, I do not love this argument, right? So Jesus is saying very plainly, here, look, bad people can do the right thing, and God's so good, won't God do the right thing? Yeah, okay, but how, I mean, give God a little more credit than just not being unjust, right? Jesus sets up this story to go with the second story of the tax collector. So I want to pause with the story of the persistent widow. It might be a little unsatisfactory, but it's supposed to go hand in hand with the story of the tax collector. So hold the widow in your mind, and now let's look at the story of the tax collector. The tax collector, as we've said before, tax collectors have a dynamic character within this culture. They're not just people that the Jews don't like. It's one thing for Romans, not Jews, to come in and do stuff the Jews don't like. It's very different for a Jewish person to side with the Romans and do stuff that the Jews don't like, right? They are traitors. So in a very real way, tax collectors are near as bad as it gets because they are perceived to be traitors, right? So I just want to make sure we get that. So although it might, you might think, you know, why poor tax collectors, like they're being hit right and left by Jesus in these parables, it's appropriate because in the context, it was hard to be worse than someone who was considered a traitor. Now, the story is relatively simple, right? The story is such that there was a Pharisee, religious leader, righteous person, law follower, who shows up at the temple to say prayers. And he shows up at the temple with a tax collector who also wants to say prayers. And so if you can imagine this scene, right? Lovely, well-dressed, high-bred, paragon, pillar of the community shows up with this ragamuffin traitor. And it's very easy for the Pharisee to, side by side with this tax collector, kind of feel good, right? This traitor thinks he wants to come and pray to God. Well, too bad he's not as good as me. And the Pharisee proceeds to remind God just how good he is. The tax collector, however, understands very, like on a visceral level, that what he does is not good. It's sort of beyond not good. And he comes to God with a profound level of humility. And Jesus says, here are two people who on the surface, it's clear that the Pharisee is much better than the tax collector, except when these two come to the temple to pray, the Pharisee comes with some self-righteousness, but the tax collector comes in full humility. Who then is, and here's the word again, justified? And Jesus says, by far, it is the tax collector. Justification in both sense, where the judge who is unjust can be convinced 
to do the right thing by someone who is persistent and when two people come together even though the one has done terrible things if they put themselves in front of god in humility they will be justified as well so put these two ideas together and you've got this persistently humble characterization of how we approach god here's where the tax collector story rubs us of the wrong way if i were to ask you with whom you identify with most the pharisee or the tax collector at first i think we want to be the tax collector right we want to proceed to god with humility right of course we do we would look at this and we would say we really want to bring before god our clearly humble nature right we're not god we know that god is god we get it right so we should be humble before god but you don't have to admit to this i will i am most often functioning like a pharisee right my default is i kind of like that i'm good right i mean i think that most of us most of the time when our brains are not engaged as intentionally as possible do the right thing and we're sort of glad we do maybe proud we do and we sort of wear being good like a big button you know to remind everyone else that they should be good too like us right that's where this story becomes difficult because even though intellectually we can look at this and very clearly we want to be the tax collectors probably i'm looking around i don't really see anybody in this room that lives within this kind of or self-identifies as a bad person right you're at church on a beautiful day in a bible study all right you're trying to do good things let's just be honest and so trying to be good and then over time actually kind of often succeeding in doing good things can tempt us into this place where we can if we're not careful judge those who don't make those good decisions jesus's warning here is that judgment is not ours right justification for people is not up to us that god is both the most just but even beyond being just which we could with the persistent widow perceive as you if you do the right thing then you can be justified but if you do the wrong thing it is not just to be justified right you have not earned it and so jesus throws the second story right behind to say it is not about earning you can do a bunch of wrong and if you come to god with a humble heart knowing your place then you can also receive that justification all right thoughts or questions about that before we move on to the good stuff yes oh did you hear that that a commentator once described this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, but only one man prayed. 
All right, so <clears throat> where they're sitting illustrates this story. That's lovely. I can't quite see the bottom very well, but middle of that wall, take a look on your way out. I'm sure he was. I saw one more. Yes. That's a really good critique. So I'll try to sum up the critique. In the first story with the persistent widow, is the judge really, does he actually think that she deserves justification? Or is she just annoying him enough to where it almost becomes pacification? My quick response would be, does his intention matter? She is justified, regardless of his intention. And I think that might be, okay. When we talk about the interpretation of parables, we can very quickly try to be too specific, right? It's a story. And so we can glean something, you know, high level, we can kind of go mid-level, but when we go too close to the ground to try and specify too much about a parable, I think we lose the point, right? So we're sort of in that gray area with that question. It's not that it's not a good question to ask, but I almost want to make sure that we don't try to pick it apart so much that we miss what is really more the macro message. It's not necessarily about the judge. It's really about the widow. She is in the right, and she can persist to achieve that justification. Even if she isn't in the right, which is the implication, although we don't know the case, right? So even if she isn't in the right, up to that point, her persistence can still achieve justification. Now let's persistence to me can easily have a negative connotation, right? When I think of persistence, I'm totally with you, right? So the example she used was, you know, kids in the grocery store who just will not leave you alone, so sure, get some candy, shut up, right? I mean, it's that, that is not, I think there is a purer way of understanding persistence here that is not annoying, nagging, but is more the regular commitment to an action. And if we, throw, if we throw that idea of commitment on top of the tax collector, then my guess is persistence takes away the negativity. And instead, if we imagine the place of this tax collector, what he did brought him to his knees in the temple to pray to God in humility. He is almost certainly going to go do that stuff again. And I bet he's going to come back again asking for forgiveness and will again receive justification. That is where we are, right? We come and we ask for forgiveness again, and we will almost certainly, with very few exceptions, do what we did later this afternoon, right? Even if we've been, and God says, Jesus says, still come back to God again and again and again, and the justification will be given to you again and again and again. 
that is the kind of persistence that Jesus is really unpacking here. All right, let's flip to the next story, the middle of our three stories. We know this story, any of you have ever sort of done Bible study before, as the rich young ruler. However, if you read your NRSV, you never saw the word young. There is an older uh, translation that adds this idea of young, but the best translation of this doesn't have that. Not a problem. I am going to refer to it as the rich young ruler. That's what everyone knows. And so if you, if you are, you know, sly and want to say, but I don't see young, you don't. Um, that's all right. I'm going to call it rich young ruler anyway. Okay. The story begins with the story about the children. All right. So we're not going to skip that part. The rich young ruler has to have part one or the setup in order to understand it. So the setup is that story that we all love, which is children were trying to come to Jesus and the disciples being super proper were trying to keep the children away from Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And then he says, if you do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, then you will never understand it. It is easy for us taken by itself to try to describe this story as you've got to take the kingdom in a simple way, right? Don't try to get too detailed. It's almost that same idea, right? Stay a little higher. Don't go too low. Have the simplicity of the world outlook like a child. There's nothing wrong with that. But I like to take this story with the rich young ruler, and Jesus' point is better than that. It's not about the simplicity of a child. It's about the way that children do not attach themselves to the world. Let's look at the rich young ruler. Again, simple story. A ruler approaches Jesus, and he says, How can I inherit the kingdom, enter the kingdom, receive the kingdom, whatever you want to say? And Jesus says, Follow all the laws. And the ruler says, I got it. I've done all these I've followed all these rules my whole life. I am a good person. And Jesus says, great. Now, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And then one of the best lines in Scripture, the ruler was sad, for he had many possessions. How, How great is that? He was sad. Can you imagine this guy, you know, Jesus, he's well known. And this ruler finally gets a chance to be face-to-face with Jesus, and he says, hey, it's me, right? I have been doing all this stuff so well, and I really want to go into heaven, right? I want to receive this kingdom. I want this stuff you're selling, right? And Jesus says, well, this is what you do. You just give everything away. I mean, can can you just, I can see him just kind of deflating right in front of Jesus being sad. And then he walks away. This story, along with the story of the children, come back to back in all three synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And so there is intentionality here between the two. And how does the rich young ruler story end? Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let's unpack that. Scary? I know, sad all. Um, All rich people. Um, So the eye of the needle is not necessarily like the eye of a needle. All right, and we need to know what Jesus could be talking about here. And I, I like this interpretation. You can do this a few different ways, but this is the way I like most. Jerusalem was a walled city. And whenever you've got a walled city, you've got gates in the walls, right? It's a fortified place, and there are only a few different places where you can go through the wall. There was a gate in the city that at night was called the eye of the needle. And what they would do, it was the one way you could get in and out of the city at night, right? Because remember, this is a fortification. This is not, it's beyond function. It is meant to protect the people of the city. And so in the daytime, when they could see really far away, Jerusalem's on a hill, right? So you can see a long way away. You can anticipate bad people coming to hurt you, right? But at night, you can't see that far. And so they would lock up all the gates except this one place where they would, in essence, lock up the big space and leave a little door over to the side that people could go in and out if they were approved, so to speak. That was the eye of the needle. Why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven is because what were camels? Camels were not show horses, right? They were big mules, right? They were super strong and could carry a huge amount of stuff. And so these merchants, i.e. rich men, who would carry stuff in and out of the city to sell, would do so in huge bags that they would put on their camels. If you were a merchant with lots of valuable stuff, and you approached Jerusalem wanting to get in. And you couldn't get in because your camel's bags were too big. You'd be forced to take them off the camel. But if you do that, you will not be able to carry the bags. And so you forfeit your stuff in order to get through the eye of the needle. Now what we're dealing with here is... How attached are you to your stuff? Or how important is it for you to enter the sacred city? In essence, to be saved from the potential dangers you could encounter outside the city. Does this all make sense? If you were face-to-face with the idea of being safe but losing all your stuff, a many rich people would not forfeit their stuff. And Jesus is saying, you choose your stuff over your life and you could lose it. That is really where the rich young ruler's story comes into play. This rich young ruler had done all the good things and yet... When Jesus said, listen, to get into the kingdom, you've got to leave all your stuff. 
he was sad because he had lots of stuff, and he liked all of his stuff. His possessions possessed him. That's the danger. Wealth is not the problem. But what Jesus is saying here is your wealth is a tool. You have been blessed with the wealth, and you are called to bless others with your wealth. Remember, Jesus didn't say just throw away your stuff. What did he say? Sell it and give it all away to the poor. Jesus is saying you've been blessed, and you are to use that blessing to be blessing to others. And when you don't, that is when you get backwards. When your stuff is more important to you than your capacity to bless other people in need, you are backwards. And just like those merchants who will not take the crap off the camel to get into the city, you too will not get into the kingdom. So the question is, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here in this passage, is he talking about something now or something in the future? Yes. <laughs> and that's where this gets difficult. We would really, I think, again, this is one of those moments where like, we really want to be the kind of person who would sell all our stuff and give it to the poor, but I'm pretty sure we've not sold all our stuff and given it to the poor. So we're going to be just honest and say we've not done this. So it's very nice if we can say Jesus isn't talking about now. Jesus is talking about the future, right? Because then so long as we know we can't take it with us, then we're good, right? So, so what I'm really going to do is I'm going to leave my estate to charity, right? Like, I don't need it when I'm dead because I've got to take it off so I can get through into the kingdom, right? Well, you know, better than nothing. But Jesus is challenging us for right now. The kingdom is not only something in the future, which it is. But the kingdom is something that we are helping to bring about on earth now. It is that too. And in order to do that, we are to love God and our neighbor. And in order to do that, the way we bless our neighbors is by giving our blessings away. That's it. We can theologize this all we want, but it's it's what Jesus says over and over and over again. And we see that mostly in the first century church, where they basically pool all their resources together to do stuff together. Now, the way that we have functioned since then as the church is that we hearken back to the pre-Christ idea of a tithe, right? We, we don't in essence, what, what we decided is we're just not going to be living in a commune. We just aren't going to. And so what's perhaps a, a secondary good, right? If we're not going to give it all away, then what could we do that isn't giving it all away that's at least some kind of faithful? 
right? And so we hearken back to this Jewish idea of a tithe. That's not Christian, folks, by the way. There is this idea that you give 10% away. And we have put the theology on it to say, I think I've said this in here before, right? God blesses us and we get to keep 90% of it. (laughs) I mean, that's really the idea that we have sort of developed is this is not our stuff. We did not earn this stuff. We are blessed with the stuff in order to bless others. We don't like this. I just want to say we live in an individualistic culture that where we can very quickly say, excuse me, I am a skilled person in some way, right? Or my parents were skilled people. I've inherited, I have given opportunities, I've worked really hard, and I have succeeded and achieved. That is why I have stuff. Everybody else can do the same thing, which they can't, by the way, which is a different conversation. But we have a certain level of stuff that we have achieved. It is ours. We earned it. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. Nothing we have is something we have earned apart from God's providence. But keep 90%. Have a good time. So long as you give the 10%, then you have at least prioritized other people over you, except that is not true. That is why I don't preach tithing. You've never heard me say that, because that's a functional rule, but it misses the purpose. You need to give enough so that you feel the giving. If that's 3%, and then you seriously have sacrificed to give 3%, you're good. If 10% of your interest income off your trust means nothing to you, keep it because you've completely missed the point. It's not about the dollars. It's about that we give enough to where our lives are changed because of the giving. That is the point. If we can live the same that way we want to live, even after a 10% gift, that is not enough. The point is that we have to be different. We have to change because we've given enough away. You've got to actually not go on that vacation or not buy that new car or not eat out every time you want to. Something's got to change in order for that gift to actually affect you the way that Jesus wants you affected. That's the point of this story. You cannot be the way you are and also enter the kingdom. We've got to change something. And we cannot be possessed by our possessions. (coughs) So if Jesus says, sell your stuff and give to the poor, why is wealth not bad? We have all been gifted by God. How we use our gifts matters. If our gifts are used for the benefit of love, whether that is loving God or loving our neighbor, then we are living into God's economy. And so if our gifts happen to be 
that we can make a lot of money, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. What, where we get off track is when we begin to think that the gifts that allow us to earn money are not gifts we received from God. The blessing is in the giftedness. We have to use the gifts, but the blessing comes from God in that we have those gifts to begin with. It does not mean that this is, this is tricky. Giftedness and opportunity go together, right? There are plenty of people who have gifts without opportunity. And so just because we've got both does not mean somehow God likes us more. But it nevertheless means we've been given these gifts and we have taken advantage of the opportunities in order to earn. But any kind of giftedness can bless other people. And so wealth, here's where Jesus does say sell your possessions, right? I think, though, that we have to expand the idea of possessions beyond just material, although that's very important, to be whatever it is we can do. So, for example, say you are an incredibly gifted artist of some kind, right? Say musician. If all you do is use that gift to make money, then at least give the money away. But you can also use that gift to bless others. You can give away what it is God has given you as a blessing too. And that might mean you just go play in a public park. I mean, how often have you seen—imagine— Think back to moments in your life when you have been surprised by something someone else did so profoundly that it changes your entire day, right? And I use that example because I'm a musician. So for me, if, I, if I'm just walking down the street or through a park or, you know, subway in a city or something like that, and a truly gifted musician is playing, just playing— Whatever I have been wrestling with, like, just melts away. I mean, it is so healing to me to receive that kind of gift from someone so freely that I understand that as a blessing. See? Thank you. See, I'm really not wrong. This is... You hear that? God was like, yes. So, in that same way, could that mean, say you're a great writer, and you can spend time every day writing letters or notes to people, completely unsolicited, just to share some love. How many times do you get a note in the mail for no reason? Not often. Thank you notes, yes, but you did something for that, right? An invitation, kind of, that's kind of this. I mean, somebody just writes you a note because they were thinking of you. That is, that is a day maker, right? I mean, that's as good as it gets, really. 
How can we, in our own giftedness, do that? Love each other. For a lot of people, if not for everyone in this room, we all have enough material wealth to make a difference to somebody. I don't know if I've ever said this to you in here. When I was in Birmingham, I was responsible for many different things, but one of them was like special events. And we had a um, lecture series. Once a year, we brought in a big lecturer. And for years and years and years, that big lecturer would draw like 200 people and everyone would be super excited, right? So I went looking around for someone much better. And did, have you all read Same Kind of Different as Me? Yeah. Right? So Ron Hall and Denver Moore, we invited because it was a real hot book at the time. It had just come out. It was the talk of the little city. Um, everybody was sharing it around. And it ended up being Denver's last trip out of Texas before he died. And so showed up in Birmingham. We had a sellout auditorium of over 3,000 people with another 1,000 on the waiting list that couldn't even get in. Why I say all that is because Ron got up and he's talked about homelessness, right? That's the whole story. If you've not read this book, same kind of different as me, it takes place in Fort Worth. So this is your, your cousins over there, our cousins. And Ron got up talking about the idea of homelessness, which is so gigantic, right? It seems systemic and impossible. And he said, pick any city anywhere. We were in Birmingham, and he said, there are more churches in this city than there are homeless people. The implication being, you don't need to solve homelessness systemically. Why don't you go help one person not be homeless? And if even half the churches did one person, boom, no more homeless people in that city. That is the kind of giftedness that we all have. We think in some way that we lack what we need to do kingdom work. We do not. That is the temptation, to think we can't do enough to make it worthwhile. And anyone who thinks that, you are wrong, period. You have a gift that can be given to somebody and when that gift is given in love, you're doing kingdom work. All of us have the capacity for something much bigger than we think. But we often live with a scarcity that we may not have enough. When that becomes our MO, we have missed Christ's invitation. That's why I don't think wealth is the problem. It's what we think wealth does for us. And so before we run out of time, the end of this, that's the, that's the chunky part of the chapter. The end is healing of the blind beggar. And again, super simple story where Jesus is walking through the outside of Jericho. Remember I told you he's coming down the Jordan River. He's about to turn, go through Jericho toward Jerusalem. He's, in essence, at the place where he's turning, and he's about to go into the city, and he encounters a blind man who yells out to him, right? So again, it's just like the kids. We've sort of started and ended in the same spirit, right? Children running up to Jesus and trying to touch him, and the disciples trying to say, stop it. Jesus says, no, 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 let them come. As he's walking by, this blind beggar 
He says, what's going on? And someone says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And this man who cannot see him yells out to him. And the disciples try to shush him because it's Jesus. And the blind beggar is what? Persistent. This beggar is persistent enough to keep yelling louder for Jesus. And Jesus comes up and says, what do you want? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And he could see. And the miracle is not in his sight. The miracle is that even though he could not see, he saw every truth. This man's sight, physical sight, may have been gone, but his spiritual sight was right in tune. And everyone else around Jesus, who continues to tell him that he does not need to die, that he does not have to do the things that he, think, that he keeps saying he's going to have to do, they are the ones who are still blind to the truth. And so we begin with the children whose detachment from worldly stuff allows them to come to God, to find God in Christ. And we end with a man who may be physically blind, but he sees Jesus for exactly who he is. And in both cases, their capacity for faith without attachment to worldly stuff, power, wealth, has allowed them to actually become part of Jesus' kingdom. Any final questions or thoughts? Oh, I feel like it's heavy in here. Jesus loves you. <laughs> you know, as we, as we leave today, think about what it is you can do for someone else. And not in that cheap way. Like, don't, like, just give someone a hug or something. But do, I mean, give someone a hug, that's fine. But think about a deeper giftedness and give something away, right? Especially give something away that you think is really valuable. Time is perhaps the most valuable thing we have. Give a little of it away and see if you might change someone for the good. Thank you all. <laughs>